Guns like a woman, son. It's all how you hold her. It sits above the mantel on a couple rusty nails. It ain't worth a lot of money. Damn sure ain't for sale Good Lord only knows All the stories it could tell My granddaddy's gone He bought it new out of the Sears Roebuck catalog It shot many shells Over the back of an old bird dog Safety off Granddaddy's gun Just an old Double barrel drill Stock is cracked And kicks like hell
couple rusty nails that ain't worth a lot of money and a damn sure ain't for sale. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 19th, 2015, and this is episode 1577 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got kind of a change-up show for you today. I realize we've been talking an awful lot about farming and homesteading and stuff like that. And I wanted to shift things up and, and talk about something different on a Just Jack show, you know, a, an individual subject show today. And I decided I wanted to talk to you guys about guns. And, and I started thinking about doing one of the shows that I've done in the past, a new version of it, getting technical, maybe talking about ballistics or selecting the right uh, gun uh, for concealed carry or maybe selecting a weapon that would fit in, in a state where you're going to have, like we're soon to have here in Texas, the option to either conceal or open carry and a gun that would be good for, for both options and a lot of other things like that or maybe do a show on ARs or, or what have you. And I just thought about it this morning and I thought, why do I love guns? Why do I, I mean, absolutely love guns. Why am I willing to risk so much to preserve the rights of gun ownership? What What is it for me that makes it special? And it's not carrying. And it's not tactical. And it's not political. Those are all things that are important to me, but they're not why I love the gun. I love the gun because I grew up with one in my hand, because I truly understand the role that it plays in America, and because that wisdom was handed down to me by my father, my grandfather, my uncle, my great-uncle. And I thought maybe I'd talk to you about that wisdom today, the wisdom of our forefathers in guns and hunting, and what it was like to grow up as a young man in the coal region of Pennsylvania when you went hunting for more than sport, and you went hunting for more than an activity, you went hunting because it was a significant part of the food that fed your family every year. You went hunting in a place where they still closed school on the first day of deer season. And you did it for a reason. And you understood the reason. And you understood that you were part of a larger thing. That's what I want to share with you today. And the wisdom that comes with understanding the value of firearms and what really makes a gun great. That's what I want to talk to you about today. And that's why you heard a different intro to today's show, and the whole song as well. It's a song I love. Not everybody's cup of tea, but I love that one, and, and it's the kind of thing I want to share with you today on the Survival Podcast. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is, maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. 
A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1577, because that is the episode. Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com has two for us today. We have Sir Francis Drake's World Tour and Privateering and the Plague Churches of Venice. I'm going to read Sir Francis Drake's World Tour, because I think if you said to somebody... Have you ever heard the name Sir Francis Drake? They would say yes. But I think most people, if you said, why does anybody care who he was, probably may not know. So let me read this to you. In 1577, Francis Drake is a privateer selected along with two other men to co-lead an English expedition to attack Spanish along the Pacific coast of the New World. Along the way, he suspects one of his co-captains of mutiny and has the man beheaded. The other captain returns to England after a storm scatters the little fleet. Drake continues on, plundering Spanish coastal towns and claiming California for Queen Elizabeth I of England. He then strikes out across the Pacific Ocean, circumnavigating the globe. When he returns to England, he will be knighted by the Queen, elected to the House of Commons, and his ship, the Golden Hind, will be placed on display for 100 years. A replica of the Golden Hind remains on display today. My take by Alex Shrug. Jake Drake had been imprisoned by the Spanish for selling slaves to the New World without permission. After he escaped, he had no problem becoming a privateer for jolly old England against Spain. A privateer is a brigand or a pirate sanctioned by the government to indirect shipping, usually at sea, who then sells the goods for a profit. A privateer carries a letter of mark which is a get-out-of-jail-free card. The advantage is that governments don't have to pay privateers, so it is a way to build an army or a navy on the cheap. Privateering is an ugly business, 
which is why governments react badly whenever a vessel is boarded at sea for, quote, inspection. Additional information. Several prayers are attributed to Sir Francis Drake. They are fakes crafted by well-meaning pastors from letters he wrote. Pastors totally missed Drake's point. The pastor's prayers are inspiring. Um, I, my little add to this is, yeah, you get a jail out of, get out of jail free card, but it's probably only going to be honored by your country and other countries that are an alliance with your country. I'm sure that it wouldn't be a get out of jail free card, for instance, if the Spanish had gotten a hold of Mr. Drake. And it's interesting, the governments will turn to criminal activity when it benefits them so openly in 1577. Today, we put it under the cloak of legitimacy and we call it lobbying. Anyway, that's my take by Jack Spierko. Next, I want to, uh, since it's Tuesday, tell you about the plan of the week. Every week, Bob Wells Nursery has a plan of the week for us to learn about something we can grow to feed ourselves with in our own backyard. Today is the Bell of Georgia peach tree. This peach is one of the more adaptable out there, doing well from zones 5 through 8. The Bell of Georgia is an old-time favorite that produces brilliant red flowers each spring and large fruit in late August. The peaches are very firm and highly flavored with creamy white freestone flesh tinged with red. Freestone, guys, means that when you pull the pit out, it doesn't have any... Um, Any of the flesh clinging to it. It comes out clean. While excellent for fresh eating, the fruit is widely used for desserts and canning as well. It's self-fruitful and requires 800 to 850 chilling hours. I've never personally grown this peach, but I like the idea that it has red flowers. Most of the peaches I have tend to have more of a pinkish color to their flowers. So a, a bright flower might be very useful as part of an edible ornamental for ed uh, ornamental landscaping. And trees are a pretty awesome looking tree to begin with, and they're really easy to grow. It's the 800-850 chill hours. I've learned not to get too obsessive about chill hours. I found that most plants will do well even if they don't have the chill hours recommended in a catalog. That's been my personal experience anyway. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Uh, if you love the show and you want it to be here you know, forever, consider joining the MSB. That's how the show uh, pays its bills. And you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members, and that's all I'll say about that one for today. Uh, and with that, I, I do want to get into... The main topic of today's show, which of course is um, guns and hunting wisdom of our forefathers. And again, I wanted to talk to you today a bit differently about guns that you might expect from a survival podcast. Uh, no ARs, no concealed carry, no ninja-like accessories. Today I want to tell you about the gun wisdom I learned at the hands of my grandfather and father as a young man. The stories, lessons, and realities that made me love guns as the tools they truly are. You may be shocked to learn this, but I didn't grow up hearing much about the Second Amendment and gun rights. I really didn't. When I grew up, boys hunted squirrels with pellet guns for the table until they hit 12. At that time, they could get a hunting license and were handed a .22 or an old single-shot Sears brand 20-gauge and told to bring back more now that they had a better gun. The concept that anyone would ever seek to take a gun away from a man who had never harmed a person with it was so foreign as to not even be discussed. Now, I think there's a lesson in that, but we're going to save that for another day. Today, I want to take you back to the 1980s in a small town with only two main roads. Those roads were called RD1, and you guessed it, RD2. The town is Jonestown, and the boy I'm going to talk to you about at the time was still called John. He had not yet uh, begun to be called Jack like his father. 
And the squirrels were fat, the deer were plentiful, and the year was about 1986. This is the point where I was at this point trusted with firearms. I was about 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, and I was now able to take a gun out of the cabinet and go to the back of the, the property and, and shoot it. Or get the shotgun out and get some skeet out and set up the trap with a friend and shoot skeet. And this is something that people would think about today and go, oh my God, a 13-year-old boy able to just take a gun out of a cabinet without asking and go out and shoot? It was completely normal. It was completely normal. And it started long before that, though. Before my family moved back to Pennsylvania, I spent a lot of summers up there with my grandfather and my grandmother and my uncle. And guns lived in a cabinet. They didn't live in a safe. They weren't hidden. They weren't kept out of reach. They were in a cabinet. A wooden cabinet with a glass door you could see right through into. So that you could see what was in there. That way you knew that everything was where it was supposed to be all the time. And my first lessons were in how to clean a gun. Long before I was able to go out and shoot a gun, I was told, well, if you want to look at the guns, I can show them to you, but once you touch them, they have to be wiped down. You, you, if you get your, your, your oils from your, your hand and the acids in your hand on the barrel and you don't wipe it down, uh, then it can rust. And that would ruin it. And these guns have been here a very long time. Some of these guns are uh, almost as old as your as your daddy. So we need to take good care of them like we always have. So, you know what? I'll tell you what, boy. Those guns haven't had a good wiping down for a couple weeks, even though they haven't been out. It never hurts to do it. Let's take them all out, and we'll go over, and I'll tell you about them, and you clean them for me. And then, you know, along the way, eventually the adults would go out shooting or hunting when I was too little, and they would come home, and I'd get a lesson in how to, you know, run a patch and a brush through a barrel and how to clean a gun properly. And I got to clean the guns. It was like a, 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 a gift to a child that, that wanted to be like his father, like his grandfather, like his uncle, like his great uncle, like all the men that they hung out with that hunted. I wanted to go hunting, and I wanted to shoot. And I was able to shoot certain things, but I was so small in stature that most full-size guns I, I couldn't shoot yet. Not even just from recoil, from size. But I got to clean them. And I got to know them intimately. I knew where the safety was. I knew what to check for before you started cleaning them, even though I completely trusted that my father or grandfather, anybody that came in and, and set the rifle down on the couch and said, give it a cleaning, would have done that. I checked again because that's what I was taught to do. And it had been several years of that before it was acceptable for me to just open the, the gun cabinet, take a gun, and go out and use it. And sitting all the way to the right was an old Crossman .22 pellet gun. And when I was old enough to carry that thing around and, and, and be able to hold it right, that was the first gun that I was permitted to put my hands on, was that .22 pellet gun. And it was so old that... Most people know variable pump pellet guns. You pump ten times, right? That's the maximum. This one was eight. I don't know exactly how old it was, but it had been around a long time, a very long time. I know like many of the guns in the cabinet, it was ordered out of the Sears catalog and showed up at the front door. And, you know, you might hear me talking this way and think, man, this guy must be like 80 or something. I'm, I'm in my 40s, guys. Again, this is the 1980s. 
So in the years leading up to, to us moving back to Pennsylvania, I would go up there and I would take that pellet gun out and I would shoot cans with it and bottles with it and set up broken pieces of skeet because we had a skeet range in our backyard and the adults would go out there and break skeet and I would find all the pieces and all the ones they missed and set them up on the bank and shoot them with the, the pellet gun. And eventually, you know, it was like, okay, you know, rabbits are in season now or squirrels are in season now. You're on our property. You don't need a license. Go out and you, you really do. That was the mentality there. This is, these are all, those are our squirrels and rabbits. If you can shoot a squirrel or a rabbit, boy, bring it home. They're, they're eating our garden or whatever. Go, go get us some. Oh, you got one? Okay, now you got to learn how to clean it. You didn't think I was going to do that for you, did you? So I had been through all of that before it was like, okay, these are guns. They belong to this one's your daddy's, this one's mine, this one's now yours. But they're... They're part of an asset the family has, and as long as they're taken care of and used, if you want to take your dad's shotgun and you want to go out back and you want to shoot skeet with it with your buddy, go ahead. And somehow nothing bad ever happened because of that. The, the, the thought that somebody might take a gun to school to shoot other students was just unconscionable. You grew up with a gun, and there was no more thought that you would use the gun for malice on another human being Then the fact that if I went into the workshop, there might be a great big screwdriver there that I could jam through somebody's skull. Or a ball-peen hammer that you could slam somebody in the head. But there's a hundred things around a, a, a small homestead like we had that could be used to inflict harm or kill another person. And no one worried about those things, so why would you worry about a gun? It was just another tool. And I think it's because we grew up with a positive gun culture that so little ever did happen that involved firearms that were used for any nefarious reason. And I started to learn a lot of things as I grew up and was trusted with more and more knowledge and responsibility. I remember getting Outdoor Life magazine and Field and Stream magazine, and every edition there was a brand new rifle on the cover of the magazine. And it had, you know, the latest caliber or whatever. I remember uh, when the, the, the .280 was called the 7mm Express in an attempt to market. I, re I remember taking these magazines and showing them to my grandfather. I want one of these. I want one of these. Well, I thought you wanted that last month. Well, yeah, but look at this. And what my grandfather told me was, there are rifles in that cabinet that have killed a deer every year for a very long time. And if you have access to a rifle like that, you don't want a new one. And I was taught that the 35 Remington was something special, and almost no one knows that. That there's a very small area in central Pennsylvania mostly, and up into parts of New England, where if you say, I hunt with the 35 Remington, people are like, oh, yeah. And that most of the rest of the country, like they heard about it in a magazine one time, or it's, oh, I saw that in a reloading manual, but they've never seen one or held one. That it was this kind of perfect bush rifle. Something that if you did your job, it was going to do its job every time. It was it was enough gun for, for black bear and deer, and gee, that was the biggest thing in Pennsylvania, so that's all you needed. But that wasn't to be my rifle. That was my uncle's rifle. And it had been in his hands at that time for about 15 years. He was, he's only about 14, 15 years older than me. 
And I was told all about it over and over again. It's the deer rifle. It's the deer rifle. It's the deer rifle. And it was because my grandfather didn't really hunt that much in his older years. And my, my uncle was the one that all these years leading up to him when we moved back went out and brought meat home for the family with the deer rifle. But there was a rifle that would sit just to the, the left of it as you looked at the gun cabinet. It was a pump action Remington 760 and 3006. And unlike the The 35 Remington, it looked almost brand new. It looked almost brand new. Because it had only been used a few times to hunt with, because my father used that rifle when he bought it before we moved to Florida, and he never took that rifle with us when we moved down south. And he spent you know, all his years down there working seven days a week and never hunted. So when we went home, that was my dad's rifle. And they called it the elephant gun, because it was a .30-06. That was the mentality, like why somebody would want a 375 H&H or a 300, you know, Weatherby or something like that in Pennsylvania when a freaking 306 was an elephant gun to these guys. And they weren't serious about that, but they were trying to make a point, and they would often say, but it's good for deer too. So I would constantly be on my grandfather about getting one of these newfangled super guns, you know, with this new cartridge or this new action or this new stock or whatever. Don't think that all this hype around, you know, firearms today is new. This was going on in the 80s. You just didn't have the Internet and YouTube and a million different gun shows. You had one or two outdoor channel shows, type type shows, you know, on like the public station. And you had the, the gun magazines. And the gun magazines were really... Uh, a big source of information at the time because you didn't just go Google to find out what the ballistics of a, a cartridge were or something like that. A reloading manual was extremely valuable if you wanted to learn all that information as a young boy. And, you know, as a young boy, you think it's important that one round is 200 feet per second faster than the other. But I kept hearing about this 3006. It was an elephant gun and getting razzed by the old guys that we'd have to tie you to a tree if you shot it, but when you get a little older, it won't be a big deal, and it's good for deer, too. And all of this hype around getting a new gun always was shot down. And then my first year that I was going to go out and hunt with a rifle, which by the time I was old enough and living in Pennsylvania during deer season, I was 14. I was handed that rifle and told it's now mine. This is your rifle. Well, they knew that all the time. They just didn't tell me that until it happened. And I hunted with it, with that rifle for quite a few years, and I shot a lot of deer with it. And I learned that an old gun like that does everything that you need it to do in the woods, and if it doesn't, it's your fault, not the gun's fault. And through these years of shooting shotguns and, and rifles and .22s, there were a lot of other things that, that my elders taught me. And one that was constantly drilled into me, and this is the one that I have the most skepticism till to this day, was don't close one eye. You have two eyes for a reason, boy. And uh, I have to say, to this day, I shoot with both eyes open. My father shoots with both eyes open. My grandfather, you know, and as long as he could still shoot, he was a pretty good shot, shot with both eyes open. And my uncle shoots with both eyes open. And my great-uncle shot with both eyes open. Now, there's a genetic disposition in my family, though, and all of us are pretty much bat-blind in our left eye. We don't see very well out of it, so... I don't know that that really has validity for people with acute vision in both eyes. But 
Something tells me closing your eyes isn't as important as some of the marksman instructors say that it is. I know that when I went into the military and I was firing at the 25-meter target for zero and fired three shots in about four seconds and had the drill sergeant yell at me for both the speed of my fire and for not closing my eye, it lasted right up until we looked at the target in which he said, you just keep doing what you're doing. And I was pretty much left alone with my rifle marksmanship after that, even in the Army, because of what these men taught me. I don't know if it works for everybody, but I also know that shutting your eye isn't going to change it if you're a terrible shot. And that, again, is the one thing out of all of this that I decided to include today that I have some skepticism on, even to this day, because I know some people are really good shots and close that left eye or that right eye. And I'll also tell you that it may have something to do with optical weakness in our family beyond just being blind. As a kid, when I was asked to maybe shut one eye in a class or something like that for like to do an eye test or whatever, I had to put my hand over my eye if I was going to close my right eye. Because if I were to close my right eye, my left eye was so weak that the left eye would close as well. I could close the left eye and not the right, but not the right eye and not the left. And I actually had to teach myself to do that. There may have been some things like that that made that part of my family, because I've really never heard that from anybody else anywhere else before. But it's the way spirit goes shoot with both eyes open. And maybe it's simply because we can't see out of one of them. But I was also told, you have a natural talent. I remember the first time my my uncle had me out shooting a shotgun, and we put some cans and bottles out, and I shot them on the ground with a shotgun, which is no big feat, but, you know, I smoked everything. And he said, wait a minute, he came back with a handful of skeet. And didn't put them in a trap or anything. He just started throwing them by hand, and I, I hit every one of them. And he went and got my grandfather and said, you got to see this. So... He threw a couple more, and the old man picked one up and said, okay, you ready? And I said, yeah. And he threw it at the tree line, and it was there for about a quarter of a second before it was around, and I missed it. And he said, that's what real birds do. But, yeah, you got a lot of talent. It'll be great when we get some skill built into it. I, I, I just wonder how much of the teacup generation of kids that we have today, the millennial generation of People that, that, that just, if, if they're challenged at all, right, they, they crumble. And if they fail at all, they crumble. And they, they can't handle being teased a little bit or razzed. I've seen, you know, guys that are 25 years old in a situation where somebody gives them a little bit of a hard time the way guys do, and they crumble. I've seen so many people who talk about what they can't do, and I just wonder if, If, if our young people today had had an old man like that as part of their lives, they, they might be a little bit tougher. It didn't bother me when I was told that. I didn't really even hear it. I wasn't even ready to learn yet. You understand that? I wasn't really ready to learn yet that I had a skill to develop. All I heard is you got talent. But there was a little bit of that in the back of the head. And every time I'd miss, they'd focus on the skill. Well, you hit 19 out of 20, but you missed one. Why? They started learning that being challenged that way wasn't putting you down, it was making you better. And that you might not hit 20 out of 20 or 25 out of 25 or whatever it was that you were going to shoot that day, but you should strive for perfection. You should work for it. And that would be where you would develop the skill. I was also taught that You should spend so much time with your gun that you know it. 
You know it the way you know a girl that you're really, really attracted to. If someone looked like her from a distance, you might confuse it, but once you turned around, you'd know it wasn't her. And the same thing with a rifle. That if you have a Marlin 25-22, like I do, and someone hands you the exact same model gun with the exact same stuff on it, made the exact same year, and you put it in your hands and shoulder it, you should know it's not yours immediately. This does not feel right. This is not my gun. There is no such thing as two guns that are completely identical. And anybody who's ever really developed a relationship with a weapon, and I, I tell you, you can certainly do it. I certainly have a relationship with that old .22. We, we shared a lot of miles together and a lot of rounds together and a lot of time together. You know that weapon. And that's part of developing mastery. I'll talk more about that later, but that's what a lot of this was about, is becoming a master in your own world. Not so you were better than somebody else, but so that you truly had mastery of the things that you influenced. And there was something really special about being told that, and then one day, being over at a buddy's house who also happened to have a same model gun and pick that up and go, yeah, that's that feels totally different. Not a little bit, not just that you would know, but like, that's not my gun. I wonder how many people today that have cabinets full of different models and makes of guns, different calibers, and I'm not putting that down because I have way more guns than I need, that's for sure, and and I'll probably have more than I do you know, now by the time that I'm ready to depart this planet because I do like collecting firearms. But I wonder how many people, that's all they've ever known, and they wouldn't know the difference between their shotgun and a buddy's shotgun if they're both older Model 12 Winchesters, or newer Model 870 Remingtons. And there's something you're missing if you don't ever develop that to where when you pick up a rifle or you pick up a shotgun, you know immediately, this is mine. Or if somebody borrows it and they bring it back and there's a scratch or a nick in it that wasn't there before, you see it immediately not so much because the gun has to be completely free of nicks and scratches, but because most of them that are on there, you caused it to happen and remember what happened and how it got there. This is what I think is missing in, 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 in today's world with guns. We're so worried about synthetic stocks and stainless steel and mountain rifle this, and this rifle's for elk, and this rifle's for bear, and this rifle's for pronghorn antelope, and this is for this, and this is for that. We've lost the wisdom that we can take an old 3006 from Florida to Alaska and pretty much hunt everything on the continent with it, and it's been done before, and if we do our job, the gun will do its job. Now, there are, there are a few things in this, on this continent, and one of them's great big brown bears that I might be a little bit intimidated to be going after with a 3006 and might want a little more gun for, but you could still do it if you had to, and, well, everything else... Jack O'Connor taught us that an animal with a hole in both lungs will run about as far as it can hold its breath. And the 3006 will punch a hole through both lungs of anything that walks on this planet. Certainly anything that walks the ground in North America. Jack particularly cared for the 270 Winchester, but the same principle applies. The next is, 
we did hunt for food. But I get really weary of hearing people bash people that they call trophy hunters. Most of these people are not hunters and don't have any idea what it means to have a trophy from a hunt. I was taught very, very quickly that you can't eat the horns on a deer. So if you bring a doe home or a spike buck and we all eat well, everybody's happy. But it's okay to have some pride in those horns. If you put a nice deer down with a nice rack on it, putting that up on a plaque and setting that up on your wall and occasionally looking at that and remembering that day, that actually takes that deer and it makes it live in your heart for a hell of a lot longer than it could ever lived in those woods. And the experiences that you have out there are just as important as the meat that you bring home to the family. And if one day you ever take something really special and you want to shoulder mount it, you don't apologize to anybody for that. Your deer, your hunt, your money. So it should be your way. And don't try to explain it to people that don't want to understand it because they're never going to understand it and there's no need to. There's no need to waste your time trying to teach somebody something that they don't want to learn. I learned that from a gun. I learned it from trying to teach people that couldn't shoot, that weren't going to learn how to shoot because they weren't ready to listen. There's no sense in pushing a string. It can be done, but it doesn't accomplish much. You know how you push a string, folks? You get it wet, you put it in the freezer, and then you can push it. But you still accomplish very little. Learn that. Learn that, bouncing around the old strip mines of Pennsylvania. I was also taught something else that some people here might take exception to, but I don't. And There was a great deal of care Every time the trigger was pulled at a, at a living animal, I want you to understand that. But it's also the case that in Pennsylvania, and you're hunting in these, these, these thickets, a lot of your shots are 15, 25 yards. This is not a place like Wyoming where we're cracking shots off at 300 yards. And that means if you're a good shot, well, you can pretty much put that bullet anywhere you want to. So one of the other things that I learned is... That hearts are really great fried in butter and onions. But no one in this house eats brains. And you know what that means. Take headshots when you can. That deer's not going anywhere. You're not going to get in an argument with somebody else a hundred yards away that says they shot it when you know you did. It's going to drop right where you plant it and you haven't ruined any of the meat and the meat is important. If it has a big rack on its head, you may not want to do this, but when you're shooting those little bucks and does, If you can put them down with that one shot, do it. Do it every time. And be proud of it when you do it well. And I did it more than once. And it always worked. And it always felt good to know that animal never knew, never had a clue. It was there one minute and gone the next, and it never knew what happened. It never knew what hit it. It didn't react. It didn't run. It just felt like somebody dynamited it. It made you feel good. I know some people that don't understand hunting may, may find that hard to understand. But a real hunter, and this was something also drilled into me, especially in my, my, you know, all my years of archery hunting as well, a real hunter is not there just to kill the animal. They're there for a variety of reasons, but one is to do the deed well, to do it humanely, to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. For, a, for many reasons. One, just to honor and respect the animal, but two, we are going to put this meat on the table. 
The less stress that animal is under, the better the quality of that meat's going to be. And I can tell you this, you didn't lose any heart when you shot that deer in the head, and boy, that was always the most tender meat. Learn that, hunting deer in Pennsylvania. I also learned some other things that wasn't all about deer. But one of the things I did learn about deer was any man, or for a matter, any boy, who's a decent shot and will sit out in the woods long enough can kill a deer. The real skill is can you butcher it? And that was another thing. I mean, you might think this is weird, but when you're a kid and you got all the time in the world, a lot of the stuff that today we don't do because we don't have time to do, you enjoy doing. And just about every deer that came into our, our home, uh, after a certain point, I took care of from skinning to quartering to boning to butchering to cutting steaks out of it. And I took a lot of pride in that. Even when we had certain things done, like we, we had one guy that would make sausage for us, but I would get everything ready to go for him, and basically he would just have the meat to throw in the grinder and mix for us, and then we started making our own sausage. Then I learned how to run a sausage stuffer. I thought that was all cool. And I was actually kind of surprised, but in time it seemed like the family had more respect for me for the fact that I could take that deer apart and do all the work with it that they didn't have time to do because they were holding down jobs, so they didn't have to worry about it, and we didn't have to spend 25 bucks to have a butcher do it. I was more respected for that than the fact that, you know, a couple deer a year that came into the home, I shot. Learned that from my father and my grandfather and my uncles. I also learned... That as much as we talked about deer, that it was often your shotgun and .22 that would feed you more than your your deer rifle. We could hunt deer, you know, once a year, and back then you were supposed to shoot one deer a year, and it was very common, though highly illegal, that everybody in the family, whether they hunted or not, would get a license. And you might shoot a deer, and if it's your first one of the year, you might put your sister's tag on it or your your grandmother's tag on it, if you know what I'm saying, because. When you actually rely on deer for a source of meat in, in the home, um, it, it becomes important uh, to you. And you start to rationalize some things that are maybe not technically legal, but you don't rationalize things that aren't ethical. So one of the things that I learned during this experience was that Just because something was illegal didn't necessarily mean it was unethical. And just because something was legal didn't mean that it was ethical. Thought I'd throw that in for you. These are some things I think would be good if our kids were learning them today. What do you guys think? But on the shotgun and the twenty-two, what I learned is that you could hunt rabbits for most of the fall and squirrels for most of the fall. And then we had those rabbits and squirrels on your property that you could pretty much shoot whenever the weather was right. If the month ended in R, it was okay. And that there was a lot of other things that you could do. You could get out there in the summer and you could shoot groundhogs. And gee, they weren't as bad eating as people made them out to be. In fact, they were pretty daggone good. And that might make connections with you so you could go out and hunt that farm later, like in dove season. And if you went out in dove season and you found a couple places close to the to the house to hunt, well, there was a limit of 12 doves a day, and that season lasted 30 days. Now, it lasted about three weeks of being worth doing, because after about three weeks into September, there were hardly any doves left in Pennsylvania. But if you could get out there after school or work every day for the first couple weeks, man, you could put a lot of doves in that freezer. So we did that. When we started adding up things like the doves, 
the ducks, the rabbits, the squirrels, the woodcocks, the pheasants, and the grouse. And you started looking at the totality of that, and you looked at some of the other things that we would shoot that some people wouldn't consider food, you know, like the, the woodchucks. Or as I started trapping, and that .22 rifle went along as, as a trapper, and you start, you know, trapping things like raccoon and, 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 and uh, uh, muskrat, those actually ended up, you know, we're not going to waste this meat. We're going to use this stuff and learn how to prepare it so that it tastes good. And all of a sudden, as much as you, as you relied on that deer meat, if you look at the total weight of meat that went into the freezer and got put in the canning and everything every year, your .22 and your shotgun were doing more to feed you than your deer rifle. That was an eye-opener for me. Because as a kid, all I could think about, little kid, I'm talking, dear, 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 dear. I got to tell this story about my dad. <laughs> when I was a real little kid one time, it was snowing like crazy. And uh, I don't even know if it was deer season, but I, I I don't remember. I mean, I was little. I was like four. And... Uh, <laughs> I asked my dad to take us out hunting, and... It, He finally agreed to it. He figured, you know, take this little kid, snot nose kid out in the snow, walk around with the gun for a little bit, and uh, that'll get this out of his system. And, you know, that's pretty much what happened. And we ended up on a pole line and about 300, 400 yards away. It was far. I mean, you always remember things being further than they are as, as a kid, but I know this was far because of the way this happened. So we see this deer, and it's like right at the, the crest of a ridge, and it's standing there. And it's it's a, it's a, a smaller buck, but it's got really polished antlers. And the reason you can see it, even without like binoculars or the scope, is because the light from the sun is like glancing off of these antlers. And the old man shows it to me and all, and I'm like, shoot him, Dad, shoot him. And he's like, well... Uh, he's too far, and 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 we you know we can't get we can't get any closer. He's going to run right over that hill, and he just didn't want to shoot. And I'm like, no, please shoot him, Dad. Please shoot him. So finally, you know, this deer can't hear us. We're so far away. The wind's howling down at us and all, and he figures the hell with it. And he's got this rifle, no scope on it, this 306 with iron sights, and he just throws it up, looks up at the deer, and cracks a shot off. And this deer goes thump. Now, I know what he was doing because of what he said the second that deer fell over. He said, son of a bitch. I didn't understand at the time. I was excited, and he had to go get some, some folks to help get the deer out. And something again tells me it not, might not have even been deer season because there was some clear concern over the fact that we had this deer down, but we needed to do something with it. And I think what had happened is he figured, I'll just crack a shot off in the air over that deer. There's nothing out there that I'm going to hurt, and I'll miss, and the deer will run away, and the kid will get to see the gun go off. Somewhere the computer in his mind registered the shot, and without trying, he dropped that damn thing. And I remember, again, son of a bitch. <laughs> and all I thought was, my dad is so cool, why is he upset? There's stories like that around so many guns out there. We need to preserve those. We need to, once the uh, statute of limitations is up, like I'm sure it is with this one, we even need to tell those stories once in a while. I learned some other things, though, from these old timers. One was, what's the purpose of a handgun? Now, this was, you know, 
there were people that had gone out and done some pretty good big game hunting at the time with with handguns and you know we got things like the 357 Magnum and the 44 Magnum from these early handgun hunters uh who who hunted with very heavy levels uh, uh loads for the 38 special and 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 the 44 um and, and actually developed a lot of these loads but for most of the, you know the folks that lived in a place like I lived in it wasn't very practical to think about taking a 44 Magnum and going off and you know hunting an elk with it in Colorado or something like that handguns served a totally different purpose pretty much handguns were for defense and it was that a handgun was for having with you when it wasn't practical to have a rifle or a shotgun with you They also went on many walks. So when you were going hiking or something like that, and you might encounter something dangerous, and you didn't, and it was again, it was because okay, we're just going to take a walk up the water dam and go picking berries. But you know, the old man had strap on his .38, or my grandfather put on his his, his old Ruger single six uh, in .22, right? Well, that was in case something came along that might hurt us. Or that maybe somebody that came along that might want to hurt us. We never really thought about that much, and you don't tell a kid, you know, a lot about that when they're really, really young, and you're just going off pick berries. But I realize now that's what it was. So, you know, I grew up in a family that didn't really carry from a concealed carry standpoint. It wasn't real easy to do either at the time. But when we went certain places where it was acceptable to carry a gun, and there might be a reason for it, the gun went along, and many times it was good to have your hands free. A handgun was pretty much that. It was a, a, a gun that filled that need, to have both hands free to be able to walk. And it was also something to develop your skill with and to, to target you with and to have fun with. And I'm not saying anything against carry. I'm just saying that when I grew up, you didn't, we didn't really think that way. And today I look back at that and go, you know, it would have made a lot of sense. Actually, quite a bit goes wrong in small towns like that, and there's some pretty violent people there. But we just didn't think that way. But I still ended up in the same place that a lot of you guys have from a totally different vantage point with my view on carrying for defense. When it came back to hunting, though, another lesson was always trust the dog He's never wrong, even when you're sure of it. If that dog says there's pheasants in that last little stand of corn, and you've been through it three times, those birds are doubling back on you, and they're in there. That dog knows. He can hear what you can't hear, he can smell what you can't smell, and he can see what you can't see. And if that dog insists that there's birds in there, trust the dog. And sooner or later, you'd always find that that dog was right. If you went through the woods and you found a, an old stripping hole, small ones, and that dog insisted there was a grouse down in that hole, and you sent that dog down there and that dog did everything he could to push that bird out or find that, that bird to point it, he couldn't find it, but he knew that bird was in there. If you gave up on the dog and you turned around and walked away, you'd have your back to that hole and make about the fifth or sixth step before you would hear... <coughs> is that grouse just tumbled out of there. He'd been watching you the whole time and just waiting for the opportunity to go out the back door. Trust the dog. 
And I think it's part of why I have such a great relationship with my dogs today. Neither one of my dogs are what I'd call hunting dogs. I think Charlie's definitely a working dog. We've, we've worked with him to where he can work with ducks. This is a pit bull pointer mix that I can actually have move a duck for me, uh, that I can trust with my animals. And it, it took some work. But I treat my dogs like family, and I trust my dogs. And if Charlie tells me that there's a, a rat hiding in something in my shed, I know it's in there. Now, sometimes I can't trust Charlie because Charlie does have a little bit of a mental defect. And if he sees a rat somewhere, and even if he kills it, well, he'll go back to that spot over and over and over again. But you can tell when he's not just looking. When he says, dude, it's in there, I know it's in there, he's always right. I remember my, my black lab, Blackie, um, one day we ended up with a mouse got in the house, a little deer mice. And this is when my, you know, my current family and I were living in Pennsylvania uh, for Jamba Hat up there. This little white foot mouse got in the house and it scampered across the floor and we thought it went down the stairs or something. And he insisted it was in my son's backpack. And... My kid pulled every book out of there. He was all timid. The, you know, he's pretty young yet. The mouse is going to bite him or whatever. I'm like, they don't bite. And we shook it and we got everything out of there and there was no mouse. And that dog insisted the mouse was there. About five minutes later, I'm like, he's still saying, and we went over and pulled the one pocket open and out comes the mouse. Trust your dog. Trust your dog. That's one of the bits of hunting wisdom that I've learned from the folks that, that, that brought me up and taught me. The next thing on dogs is never shoot anything in front of your dog that you don't want him to hunt. If you want a dog to be a bird dog and you don't want that dog to chase rabbits and a rabbit breaks out in front of that dog and because you want a rabbit that day, you shoot that rabbit, you just taught that dog that together you guys hunt rabbits. Now, for us... That wasn't a problem. Our go-to hunting dogs were Brittany Spaniels. And that's what we wanted. But my grandfather did tell me there's, there's, there's guys that want their dogs to be bird dogs and, and then they'll shoot a rabbit in front of them or a squirrel in front of them. And as soon as you do that, that dog believes that as part of your pack, that's his job to go find those two. So never shoot anything in front of a dog unless you, you want that dog to hunt that thing. When it came time to leave the, the dog at home and go out in the deer woods, though, one of the other things that I learned was to pack a lunch and let the yokels do the work. See, in, in deer season, a lot of times now, people go out and sit in the morning. This is especially hunting, true on hunting on public land. And we didn't have deer leases and stuff like that. We hunted public land and abandoned mine, you know, mining company land and stuff like that in state forests. And there'd be 50 guys hunting, you know, a couple hundred acres at the most at any one time. There were times where you'd see a sea of orange out there, people walking around like fools. But they'd come in, drink their coffee, smoke their cigarettes on a deer stand, wonder why they've been hunting 18 years and never seen a deer while on a stand in their lives. And they'd hunt till about 10, 11, 12 o'clock, get good and cold and miserable, and decide to go have lunch. And then they'd all leave. And if you'd go where they wouldn't go, if you'd sneak back into the thickets, if you'd stay put all day long, either when they were leaving or coming back in for the afternoon or running around doing one of their drives or acting like idiots or a fool in some way, that there'd be deer that would find those escape routes and try to slip away. And if you were in the right place, you could capitalize on that. Pack a lunch, plan to spend the whole day there, put in the extra effort, and you'll be rewarded. And I found that to be the most effective way 
to consistently take deer with that type of hunting, public land, high pressure, what have you, is to just get into the thickest, nastiest places that no one else would go, find the escape routes, and be more patient than everybody else. So in that, I learned patience. And I also learned that, you know, there's people out there that are not the sharpest knives in the drawer, and they have certain intrinsic behaviors, and you're not going to change them, so you might as well accept those behaviors and just simply set up your life to, to take better advantage of them. I'm thinking maybe that has a lot to do with the way we talk about and do things here at the Survival Podcast even today. Also, we did a lot of duck hunting. And one thing my uncle drilled into me is he said, if there's ever two ducks, got just a pair of ducks, and they're, they're, they're passing or whatever, and you make a shot and, you, and that one folds up and drops, don't fire that second shot right away. Just wait. When that first duck sees that, that second duck going down, it'll usually set its wings and follow it in. It won't realize what's happened. It'll think it's landing, and it'll follow that second duck down. And damned if it doesn't work. And instead of taking that really hard second shot while those birds are streaking across the sky on a passing shot, you get a nice easy second shot if you'll just have a little more patience. Learn that in the swamps of Pennsylvania. The next thing is, if you trust yourself, the gun will respond correctly. If you don't doubt that you're going to make the shot, if you believe that you're going to make the shot, if you let the gun be an extension of your hands, if you keep your head down on that shotgun, keep the moving the keep moving the gun and see the target versus the sights, you're going to consistently hit what you're aiming at. So to be confident but confident based on your knowledge and your skill and your practice, not confident based on arrogance. I also learned when things don't go right, if you wound it, you find it. And if you fail to find it, well, then you learn from it. And that didn't matter if it was a dove you dropped in tall grass and just couldn't find and the dog couldn't find. You kept looking for it till you found it, or if it was a deer. The only time I was ever part of a hunt where we had a deer that was hit that wasn't found, my uncle shot. And he shot it with that old tried and true 35 Remington. And he shot it at about 25 yards. And my uncle is a damn good shot. I don't agree with the man on, on, on a lot of things in life anymore, to tell you the truth, on some things. But, you know, I respect him for who he is and his ability. And when it comes to being a, 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 a good shot, He's one of the best that I've ever seen. And I'm including all the people I served in the military with. And there are some damn good shots there, too. This guy's a crack shot. I've seen this guy drop deer at 100 yards running. Like he was dropping a, a rabbit at 20 yards with a shotgun. This guy's a good shot. And he had that confidence, and he did everything that was natural. He took a shot that he had taken so many times before in his life and, and didn't expect that there would be any reason to have to take a second shot. And, a small four-corn buck, you know, so a four-pointer, uh, toward the end of the season. And we needed some more meat. And I did a little push where you have one guy stand and one guy move around and sneak through and, and move the deer. And I pushed a deer out in front of him. My father was with us, too. And a deer stepped out in front of him and looked straight at him. So you have that shot straight on into the chest. And he took the crosshairs of his old thirty-five and he set it right on that deer's chest and he pulled the trigger. 
and the deer hunched and fur flew off him and he kind of hunched and, and went into the bush. And he could have shot him two, three more times easy and he didn't because well, he ain't going nowhere. It's a hard shot. So he yells and snow on the ground. So there's going to be no trouble. For, I mean, why put another hole in this animal? So we all get together and we find some blood and some hair. And I, even as a kid, I'm looking at the blood going, there's not a lot of blood here. And he goes, oh, he's dead. There's only one hole because it went in from the front. So, you know, so we start going a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And we don't find this deer. And after about 500 yards, we're finding little tiny drops of blood that if it wasn't for snow and being able to follow tracks, we wouldn't be on this deer. And this was in the morning, and we ended up home after dark that night with no deer. And the next day we got the dog, and we went out with the dog and put him on the trail and uh, spent the whole next day looking for that deer. And we never found that deer. And of all the, the deer hunts that I've been on with family and friends and alone, that's the only deer that I ever saw injured and not put down. Ever. Now, well, there was good news on that. The good news was the next year, uh, a fellow named Mark Leonard, who was a good uh, friend of the family, shot a nice young eight-point buck on Pine Hill Mountain, right where this deer had been the year before, and said when he skinned it, it had a scar. And the scar went from basically the brisket down the right flank of the deer. And what had happened is that bullet, and this is where, you know, bullets don't all, there's a, there's a gray area with ballistics. And sometimes things just don't do what you would expect. And that 200 grain round nose 35 caliber bullet hit that bone on that brisket and turned and basically made like a whip scar. Like somebody had hit this, this deer with a great big heavy duty bull whip and had cut a superficial wound and ripped it down the side of this deer, almost to its ham. And the deer had recovered just fine. And that's why we never found it. And I think my uncle took a lot of solace in that because he knew he, he knew then, and it had been a year later, he still hadn't forgot, he knew then that has to, that's the only thing that makes sense. And I didn't leave that thing to die slow of gangrene for the coyotes. And that was important to me, that was important to him, that was important to all of us. If you were going to do something... You do it right. If you wound it, you find it. And if you fail to find it, you learn from the experience. And what we learned from that experience was bullets are cheap. If it doesn't go down, shoot it again. If you've hit something and it doesn't go down, shoot it again. And if it doesn't go down, shoot it again. And sooner or later, it'll go down. Because then you will not spend two days of your life trace chasing a deer that you're never going to find. Which is what we did. But we did learn from it. And I've stuck to that rule. If I put a bullet in an animal now, and it goes more than two steps, it doesn't go three. I'm on it, and I'm up there with that follow-up shot. And if I do a little more meat damage than I wanted to, so be it. It's my responsibility. If I did it right, I wouldn't have to take that second shot. The next one was, every trip in the woods is a scouting trip and a time to learn. There were times we were just going to take a walk. We're not going berry picking. It's like April or May or June or something. We're not going fishing. We're just taking a walk. But I'll tell you what, if I was with any of those men and you saw deer, you know, deer droppings 
look at them. Well, they're old. It's been there, hadn't been here for a long time. Or they're, they're shiny. It was in the last day or two at the most. Oh, look at that branch across that trail. See those nick marks in it. Well, those are from hooves. Oh, look at all the, look at all the squirrel nests here from last year. This is going to be a good place to hunt squirrels this fall. Oh, look at the ducks on the water dam. There's going to be a lot of ducks in the, in the swamp this year. If they're, if they're breeding here like this now, that's where they're going to move when it gets a little colder. Hey, look. There's a, there's a group of deer. Let's see how close we can get to them before we scare them off. Or, hey, do you know what kind of tree that is? Hey, do you know what kind of plant this is? Hey, boy, right now, point north. Which way's north? You should know. You've been here before. Don't, don't look at the sun. Don't try to figure it out which way is north. You should have, you should have that down in your head. We had different names for different places on the mountains. Like one place that I shot a deer, we called the funnel because the woods funneled down. So it might be, if we scared a deer right now and it was heading for the funnel, how would the stander get to the funnel and how long would the pusher wait? And then how would they follow up pushing to the funnel? Things like that. Always, every single time, walking by a stream, where do you think the trout would be in that hole right now? Why? Look around. What what bugs are, are, are hatching and active right now? So what fly would you use for that trout? And it wasn't, I mean, don't get this wrong. It wasn't like dealing with like a German grammar teacher. It was fun. But there was always, let's pay attention. Let's see what's going on. Let's see what, what, let's make sure that when we're laughing this season, because all of the people that we know have yet again not got a deer, that we can laugh because our freezer's full. And I'm serious. I mean, there were good people up there that had hunted for 15 years and shot one deer in 15 years. They didn't pay attention like that. And I learned that, like, If you put in that effort, then you were entitled to the reward at the end of it. But if you didn't put that effort in, then you weren't entitled to bitch about it. And you'd be regulated to like getting whatever somebody was nice enough to give you some extra meat or something like that. And we did a lot of that. I also learned about people that expect more than they should expect. So, oh, you got a deer. I hope you're going to give me some meat. Well, that's not a way to ask. That didn't sound like please. And these people didn't even know how much meat you got from a deer. You don't get that much meat from one deer. It's not that big an animal. And you realize, well, the reason they don't know is they've never shot one. They've never butchered one. They're part of this whole, you know, Appalachian culture more in, in word than deed. And I started to learn that what you did was a hell of a lot more important than what you said. This is why I weep inside for our, our youth today. Because I realize how much of what I take for granted as knowledge came from these lessons that so many will never experience anymore. And they find other ways to teach these things, I guess. The next was the true value of a gun is in the hands of the man holding it. That all of those guns I would show my grandfather on the cover of Outdoor Life magazine or, you know... Field and stream or whatever, and they always had a price tag on it. And, you know, I would always equate it to how many lawns I would have to, to cut and how many you know driveways I would have to, to shovel. And he'd be back to 
what's that 306 worth to you that you shot two deer with last year? And that it was more about that relationship you had developed with the gun and the confidence you had in the gun. And that was the value of a gun. That there'd be guns that I would own that I would never sell. And that a gun that you own that you would never sell was actually worth something. And one that you would sell, no matter how much money you got for it, wasn't really worth anything to you. It was just like buying a house that you were never going to live in. And it would be a hell of a lot better if we would focus on the ones that actually did the job for us. And I can't say that I've totally bought into that, because I'm looking at four guns leaning against the wall right now that I haven't shot in two years. You know, and I have them because I have them. I'm looking at one behind me that I bartered for because I always wanted one of those. It's a it's a Belgian-made Browning 12-gauge shotgun. I just wanted one. I got an opportunity to have one, and I do. But it doesn't mean what that old Marlin 25 means to me. It doesn't mean what that 306 means to me. It, it doesn't mean what there's an old Sears model 20-gauge with one of those external chokes. A terrible gun. But... You know, it belongs to my uncle right now, and I hope when he passes on to have that because I hunted with that gun with my father. Those guns matter to me. Those are weapons I wouldn't sell. I have some really nice forty-five pistols. I love them. I'd sell any of them for, you know, more than they're worth. If I have a gun worth a thousand bucks and you're dumb enough to give me fourteen hundred dollars for it, it's yours. Here. I'll go buy another one and put $400 in my pocket. I'm, I, I could care less about that individual piece of metal. But you try to buy that little Marlin 25 for me, it's not happening. That's going to become my grandson's gun someday. And I just hope that he has the affinity for it that I do, and it stays in our family for many, many generations past, because I know it's up to the task. That's the other thing I learned about guns, that all of this I need a new gun stuff was kind of stupid. Because the whole point of a gun was it was made so well that it lasted longer than we did. That there'd be no reason to need a new gun if you took care of the one that you had. The most you might need to do is take a little rust off it because a spot didn't get wiped down right or maybe put a little bit of extra finish on the stock where you dinged it up a little bit. But those marks were character marks, and you'd remember where you were when you slipped and fell and that happened. That's That was the value in these things. And the guys that go home early, they don't eat well. They're those yokels that move those deer around for you. But that, that one stuck with me for so many other things. Like when I was coming up in, in the business world and there were things that needed to be done and everybody hit the door at 459.59 and I was still there. That's because I had learned that. That there's only so many positions above the one you're in right now and the guy that gets it's the one that works for it. And not just works hard, but does the important work. Does the things that that need to get done to make the task completed. See, that's the thing about hunting. You can work hard and still starve. You really can. There's, There's a cut and dry to hunting. When you pull the trigger, the deer's dead or it's not. 
when you when you when you take that shot with that shotgun, the duck falls or it flies away. There's no trophy for second place. There's no trophy for first place. You eat or you don't. You get a direct, immediate feedback result. And it's not just with hunting. It's with target shooting. When you set those skeet up on a bank 100 yards away, and you see, well, how, how much drop do we get out of this little 22? And you figure that drop out, and you hold the bub, and you pull that trigger. You either did it right, and the daggone thing breaks, or a puff of dirt shows you that you failed. I think that's one of the greatest lessons that we learned from firearms. It's immediate feedback. It did or it didn't. How you feel won't change what happened. And that includes the dangers that they represent. If you go out and shoot pheasants and grouse and deer and squirrels and rabbits, then you know full well that what comes out of the end of that, that, that barrel is lethal. And it has to be respected. And you know you can never call it back once the trigger is pulled. You learn a reverence and a safety And that also translates into other things. You think about it when you're thinking, oh, I can get up that rock. When I'm, I'm talking about nothing to do with a gun. Or, oh, I can take that turn just a little bit faster with this car. Maybe not so much. Maybe not so much. You learn to be cautious where caution is called for. And you learn to have respect for things that are dangerous and for things that are bigger than you. And you learn there are some actions that you can you can regret, but you cannot change. And that's also part of if you wound it, you find it. You pull that trigger and you gut shoot that deer. If you can't make that follow-up shot and that animal you know ends up two days later being torn apart by coyotes or three months later dying of gangrene, it's your fault you did it and you can't fix it. You learn these lessons when you hunt, especially as a young man. Also, when I would start to see what other people miss, that's when they would say things like, you're starting to figure it out. Like when we were walking through the woods and it was all, you know, mockernut hickory. And then there was like, just off in the distance, one shagbark hickory. It's the only shagbark hickory there. And I said, look at the shagbark. The old man go, yeah, you're, you're starting to figure this out. You're starting to get it. Now, what was the significance of that? It was simply that it wasn't like everything else. This pattern recognition, or when you know you were you, you were you were out just kind of walking around instead of being a lackadaisical kid like you always had been. You're the one saying, hey, take a look at this. Look at this, Dad. These are scrapes from last year. There was a deer running a scrape line here. This is close to the house. If anybody had taken a deer out of here, we, we would have heard about it. Well, this buck's going to be here this fall. This is close. I can hunt this after school by myself. Oh, you're figuring it out. Or when you'd walk in preseason scouting and you start to go, oh, the leaves are changing on that tree earlier this year. It's going to be a little bit colder in winter. Things like this. That's when you say you're starting to get it. I remember the first time that I went archery hunting and, and, and I ever had a, a bird land on my arrow. And so I'm sitting up in this tree stand and I've got the full, you know, 
net on and everything. And I'm in like the, this is back when the, 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 the oak bark style camouflage had just come out. And it was, it was really good stuff for the time. And I'm up in that tree and I'm sitting there and I've got an arrow knocked and I've got my hand sitting on the bow and I'm just watching. And these little chickadees start coming through the, the forest and this, this chickadee, lands on the arrow and it's looking at me and it's turning it's and it knows something's not right but it doesn't know what it is and then it flies up off the arrow to a limb over my head it's hanging upside down like by his butt and looking at me from underneath and I finally crack a little bit of a smile and move my eye up and it freaks out and flies away and I didn't see any deer that day and, and, and my uncle comes to get me and I'm just sitting there and by now it's dark and I've got this and I'm just waiting by the, the thing with the stand on my back and waiting for him to show up And I've got this huge grin, and he says, what's going on? And I tell him about the bird. He says, yeah, you're getting it. Because how many how many of your, your friends in school do you think will ever have that experience in their life? And I, I told him, honestly, not many. Even some of them that hunted, most of them weren't archery hunters, so they, they wouldn't be out in this, type of the, this time of the year doing this type of hunting with this level of concealment and... He's like, you're going to see so many things because of this. You're going to see grouse come through the woods, drumming in the fall, which is a, a thing they do in spring, and they're going to be drunk on grapes. They eat the fermented fox grapes and get drunk and think it's spring. It's things like that. You notice when you, when you hunt this way. And it's some of the things that I really miss about the Northeast. A lot of this stuff's hard to do in Texas. It's a different type of hunting down here. And that's when I started to really learn about enjoying the experience. And it would be special, and most people would never understand it, and you could try to explain it, and those that wanted to understand it would, and those that wouldn't would not. And that one day I would understand what they were trying to teach me. That was said to me a lot. One day you'll get it. One day you'll understand what we're trying to teach you. And I think it's finally, you know, in my adulthood that I figured out what they were trying to teach me. And what they really were trying to teach me was the word I used earlier, mastery. To be a master. Now, mastery has become a title of honor and, on some levels, arrogance today. I'm a master of Taekwondo, or I'm a master of, of this, or a master of that. And that usually infers that I'm better than others. That's not what they meant. What my father told me about shooting was, you're a really good shot. You're better than a lot of people, and there's a lot of people better than you. But you're really good at what you do. But what you need to do is be as good as you can be at it. And then to know your limits. So that not only are you a good shot, but when you're at the edge of your limits, you have too much respect for the animal to take the shot, even though you might be able to do it. And to know where that limit is and to have the discipline to stay within it. That's mastery. That when you were able to, to stand in a piece of woods and understand the way that the animals would behave by the signs they left behind. Not this like supernatural ability to track a leopard like some gun bearer has in Africa, but simply, well, here's the, here's the flow. Here's the way these, this woods, these woods are set up. And, Here's the areas that would make good bedding areas. Here's where they would be feeding this time of year. And because the wind is predominantly this way, uh, since they're going to be moving between these two locations at these peak hours, this is where you would want to set up. 
but that's all going to go to crap in, 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 in rifle season because a whole bunch of yokels are going to come through here and ruin that pattern. So that would make perfect sense if we were bow hunting. But since we're not going to be bow hunting here, what we need to understand then is that's the pattern. So if the pattern's disrupted, how are the deer going to respond to the disruption of their pattern? Where are they going to seek safety? And how do I get there without them knowing I went there? Or that when you were standing at that hole, you were trusting that dog, you did believe that grouse was in that hole. But after throwing rock after rock and stick after stick and sending the dog down over and over again, you finally said, whether it's here or not, I know he's not going to give up his location while I'm here. And on the third step, instead of the fourth step, you were already pivoting, and when he went to go out the back door, bam, and the wings fold, and he drops. And it looks like one fluid motion. And you know damn well you can't do it every time, but there's times where you touch it, that's developing mastery. And that's what happens with a gun in your hands at times. There are times when you're like my old man and you throw that gun up and you're not even trying and boom, down that deer goes. There's a, a point, and you, you experience it in other things. I've experienced it playing darts in a bar room. All of a sudden, that, that red rectangle at the 20 looks like it's five inches square and I can just put the darts into it and this is going to be easy and this is going to be great and it happens for one or two rounds and I don't even mean the whole game, I mean one or two three dart rounds and then it's gone, but you've touched it you've touched it, there's, there's a connection there, everything worked perfectly and it's those fleeting moments that make all of this attempt to master these woodsman crafts perfect or it makes it worth doing, is that perfect moment. I've experienced it hunting. I've experienced it fishing. There was a day in Sanibel Island, Florida, that I was out fishing about 6 o'clock in the morning. My son and my wife are still asleep. Uh, I'm looking out over the west. The sun's coming out to the east, so the sun's behind me. It's glancing off the water. It's the Gulf of Mexico, but it looks like a lake. It's so placid. And I hook this, this ladyfish, and it's about 40 yards away from me when I hook it. And it comes up out of the water and it dances on its tail. It goes about 10 feet on top of the water, dancing on its tail. And it's shining like a mirror. And the sun's blowing off of it. That moment was a perfect moment. What these men were teaching me is that you can live your whole life and only have a few of them. But pursuing them is worth it. That actually is something I learned because I grew up with a gun in my hand. And it's why I get so disgusted when I hear people throw around words like gun culture. Or insinuate that since someone has a gun, they're bad or they're wrong. This life has given me so much. There is so much of my success that I owe to those days. I remember being a young kid and reading the works of people like Robert Rourke on hunting in Africa. And I remember that as I would, would crawl up the bank of a slate bank, a shale bank, 
from the coal mines. And it would be cutting into my knees to shoot a crow off of a garbage dump. And I would lower those crosshairs onto that crow's shoulder on that old 22 and think 110 yards, little higher, wind coming from the right, hold it over his tail. And I, in that moment, that poor kid from the coal country was Robert Rourke taking the shot at a Cape Buffalo. Such is the mind of a child. But it's that dream that makes you realize what I have, what I have today is not what I'm limited to having. There's so many people that I grew up with in that depressed coal town that are no better off today than the day they graduated high school. I would say in some instances there's some of them that are far worse off. But they didn't have men that taught them to master the craft of rifle marksmanship and woodsmanship. And just, in general, to appreciate all of the things that they had around them and to make the most of what they had and to take pride in feeding yourself and feeding your family and knowing how to deal with all of these things. People say that guns are the problem in America today. I believe that if we could bring this gun culture to our youth, we could solve a lot of the problems of today. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. It was definitely a change-up and definitely different and even came out different than I expected that it would. But with that, this has been Jack Spirico, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I'm a couple rusty nails Ain't worth a lot of money And a damn sure ain't for sale Good Lord only knows all the stories it could tell My granddaddy's done He bought it new out of the Sears Roebuck catalog It shot a many shells over the back of an old bird dog It backed the burglar down when Grandma took the safety off Granddaddy's gun Just an old double barrel twelve Stock is cracked and it kicks like hell Wouldn't mean what it means to me to no one I can still hear his voice when I put it to my shoulder It comes like a woman, son, it's all how you hold her Taught me a whole lot more than how to hunt Pass it on to my grandson My granddaddy's gone He handed it to me On the day I turned 13 With a half-shot box of shells And a kit to keep it clean I keep a picture in the case Of that sweet old man
couple rusty nails that ain't worth a lot of money and a damn sure ain't for sale.